wherever you go in the world, I really recommend seeking out, admiring and enjoying street art. It really can elevate a trip and give you a whole new way of understanding the local culture and its people. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello! While on the phone recently to Laura, she told me something about the way she views my podcast. She says she always willingly and without prompting recommends my podcast to other people. This is a good thing. What she also said, however, big caveat here, is that she adds a disclaimer. She says that it's really good, but my unmedicated ADHD is clearly audible in my podcast and therefore it's something she feels the need to tell people. Something about a lack of structure. I'd like to think I plot my podcasts and stick to the subject most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, that's more or less what I suspect too. I would change, but like I'd be able to. But also, Laura says I'd lose some of the charm if I did. Jeepers, could you imagine if I had a similar-minded co-host? Have you heard the All Learn Parkour podcast? Yeah, a bit like that. Anyway, leg update. The Friday before I issued my last podcast, but the Friday before I should have issued my last podcast, I went to the doctor to discuss the x-rays of my lower leg. So on the one hand, they didn't show evidence of a stress fracture. My doctor said, yeah, these things often don't appear on the first pass. On the other, they showed some kind of dubious repair on the opposite side of my leg at roughly the same point, exactly the spot on the outside of my leg where I have an ache on the inside of my leg. Much confusion commences. Anyway, the doctor's recommendation was that I have another x-ray. And he'll specifically make sure that he chases the results up in much quicker time than previously, so it doesn't take four weeks for them to come back. Like, I can just about walk without my stick now, so I don't really know what else it's meant to prove. Nor, as it happens, did the radiographer. So I popped along on the Monday to get my x-ray. She took one look at the referral and went, but why? It's not going to show anything new. And indeed, if it's healed a bit, it'll even show even less than the previous one. Especially if you've not done yourself an injury in the intervening time. She did give me one in the end, but we were both a wee bit confused as to the purpose. By the time my doc gets the results, I'll probably be moving fairly normally again. Or at least I hope so. I'm off to Malta in a week, over Easter. And Laura walks a lot. What I probably won't be doing is park running, though. Malta doesn't have a park run, but that's not the point. I volunteered a couple of weekends ago, for the first time since the week after my injury, and it was fine. And I'm volunteering again in this, well, I say upcoming as I type this, uh, weekend as well. It will have been my parkrun's 100th edition, which is something noteworthy for my local parkrun, I guess. I'll have done about a third of them, which isn't too bad a proportion. It's also the only parkrun I've volunteered at so far, seven times. I don't have any other housekeeping, only that at the time of typing, my Twitter followers are confused by my wearing glasses in the shower. Don't they get steamed up? Apparently not. Or at least not as much as everyone else's seem to. Don't know if I've just... I mean, I've always just had showers with... Lots of airspace, maybe, or, you know, a lack of a top panel. Or maybe I just have my shower slightly cooler than everybody else. I tend to have the water about 38 degrees Celsius. 
I can't not wear my glasses, partly because I can't see very well without them, but mainly because I hate, hate, hate the vibe of water on my face, and especially in my eyes. In my younger days, I had a habit of wearing swimming goggles, about the only use they ever got, but then point one kicked in as I felt being able to see was more important than having my eyes completely covered. I've also never understood baths. Hey, let's lie in a pool of your own dirty water for 20 minutes, getting progressively colder. Anyway, on with the show. So, street art. It's such a vague term, I think. There's many definitions to what street art is, and most of them very subjective. One thought comes from Sarah Irving, the urban wanderer, who sees a lot of it on her walks around her local suburbs. To me, there are two kinds of street art, and both have their place. There's the commissioned kind that you're likely to enjoy on the walls of Brussels with pretty maps that you can follow. And then there's the graffiti kind of street art, the type that matches the Oxford Dictionary definition, that it is artwork that's created in a public space, typically without permission. There is, of course, also the less typically aesthetic graffiti style, like the scrawled dick pic, or comment like your dad sells Avon, which also has its space in the street art scene, mainly because you're likely to experience more of it than the other two examples. And yes, when many people think of it, I imagine their mind would automatically go to either the painted murals that bedeck many a city building, or, more likely, maybe with a slight dismissive edge, it's the chaotic tagging and random lettering and doodling that's what comes to mind first, as well as, perhaps, old posters and peeling stickers. Sarah herself goes on to mention this. When I think of street art in Manchester, I picture the flapping, curled edges of wheat paste-applied paper images battered by the northern weather layered by dozens of other images covering the pre-war bricks of the murky back alleys of the northern quarter. Or the lampposts, decoupage with political and activist stickers pimping a plethora of causes, or simply a mini portfolio of an artist I'm yet to discover. Wherever they are, they always catch my eye. Obviously, people have been painting on walls since prehistoric times. Some of the earliest cave art, you know, that we normally associate with images of Elland and arrows, were actually more like doodles, maybe an early form of tagging, in the same way that I will often mark my presence in more temporal spaces with a crude drawing of a daisy. And while tagging as we associate the concept really came to its own in the USA in the 60s and the 70s, I'll talk about that in a little while, this was a modern spin on something people have been doing for millennia, saying, I was here, this is me. And while to my knowledge, no, our village needs a revolution, cave art exists, I'm 100% certain that for as long as there have been administrative power structures, there have been people challenging them. And indeed, our word graffiti derives from ancient Greek grapho, to write, via the Italian graffito, a scratch, as in a scratch on a cave wall, or a toilet door. An article on the Vintage News website suggests one of the earliest surviving examples of such graffiti is in Ephesus in Turkey. It's scrawled into a stone wall and shows a heart, a woman and some wine and gives a direction. The suggestion is this is the pre-Jesus equivalent of one of those business cards you used to find pasted to the inside of a telephone box. You know the ones. The ones that promise to show you a good time. I have never called one of those lines, obviously. The rise of tagging in the USA was, as far as I can tell, the first application of the wider street art movement, which was initially popularised amongst the urban black population of places like Philadelphia and New York City, at first on the local metro systems and then later on walls and roofs as the trains became more policed. Partly the colours and vibes were added because individuals wanted theirs to stand out, but also, of course, the very act of doing it was a political act, a way to tell white middle-class dominated politics, we are here. 
Understandably, this political class was very resistant to graffiti and a whole culture developed which derided it and only ever saw it in a bad light. And yet, meanwhile, some of this street art was being bought by galleries and collectors. But more about the art industry later. My friend Adam, one of the peeps in the town I used to live in, has thoughts on the dichotomy of graffiti. I do like seeing graffiti about, particularly when it's done well. I think it looks amazing. Um, I think it's frowned on by generations who were quite prudish. Uh, they're not very open to things being different. They like it very prim, proper, grey, boring, dull. <laughs> I want everything to look Birmingham without being Birmingham. They don't tend to like a lot of colour, you know, for, for in many different guises, which is, you know, it's always quite sad. So, yeah, so generally I, th I think the, the bolder and brighter and bigger and, you know, well-illustrated stuff works better than the garbled mess that people can end up just randomly painting in a single colour on a fence or a toilet wall or, you know, someone's car or whatever. <laughs> it's just like no invention goes into it all. There's not really any artisticness in it. It's just bullshit. I, I, don't, I don't like tagging when it's not done very well. Uh, I think graffiti tagging, if you do the really big, bold, sort of 3D-style lettering, there's lots of different colours, and it's like, that's definitely, whichever artist that is, that's their style, and that's that's their tag, and it's very unique, and they can replicate that wherever they go, but it's very, it's less gang tagging, where it's just some squiggle with a single colour of um, spray paint, and instead it's just the huge mural of, like, yeah, that's my wall. Never been a fan of the shit graffiti on the inside of toilet doors with a marker pen, though, that's... Not even remotely inventive, it's just we've just scrawled some shit on the wall and hope for the best. And I think a lot of the time when I look at that, I'm like, you didn't really put any effort into that, did you? When you wrote dick on the wall. It doesn't really say anything, it doesn't have really a, any artistic expression, it's just I'm just a twat with a biro and look at me go. And while tagging, the act of painting your identity on a wall, often over the top of someone else's work, is a valid, if less respected by society, form of street art, there's a whole myriad of other expressions that also come under the same banner. From casual graffiti to full-scale wall murals, from wall stickers and spray painting a negative traced image, to large sculptures in town squares designed to liven up a place and make it feel more picturesque. The exact nature of these sculptures is often unclear, if not downright dubious, as you'll hear later. Sometimes street art is spontaneous, a reaction to local conditions and mood. Sometimes street art is directly sanctioned by the local council in order to improve aesthetics or provide a legal way for people to produce their art. Each of these aspects tells its own story. We'll hear more about that side of things later. As I have intimated, though, street art in general is also often deeply political. And as we heard earlier, a lot of the rise in its popularity was because it was a way for especially black and people of colour in the USA to get their voices heard and to increase awareness of their issues. When you're in a situation where the politicians and the media don't listen to you and don't give you a voice to tell your stories, then one way of telling the world how you feel and what you need and what matters to you is to take matters into your own hands. And underrepresented and undervalued people the world over now do the same. This is why street art is often quite revolutionary in scope. The only way to make a change is to change everything, and the only way to rouse support for that is to do it outside the boundaries of normal media. I saw a Communist Party of Great Britain sticker on an electrics box outside Queen's Park the other day. They're not my onions, but I found it interesting it was there. In more general terms, street art is a way to promote local issues, and looking around a suburb at what's being painted, stickered, etc., shows you what's important to the people in a given area. Around where I live, it's mostly Stop Cambo, which is a proposed oil field west of Shetland, Improve Public Transport, Stop Sniggering, Laura, LGBT and Trans Rights, and stickers promoting Refugee, 
a local charity that provides assistance to refugees newly arriving in Glasgow. You can maybe get an impression from this what kind of place my suburb is. And that's the point. Kate Frankie from the blog This Could Lead to Anywhere agrees with this vibe of what street art is. Okay, so street art. Now, you might know that I love Banksy and I think that going to places and finding like areas of street art, like in Melbourne, I remember kind of walking around there and just thinking this is really very cool. But on a much deeper level, I think there's a real like societal and political importance for street art. I think the particularly with Banksy, that really comes to mind, the kind of political side of it and the having a voice and people being heard and that artistic expression and that's hugely me a lot of my values um, and I really think it's important. One might also argue street art itself includes performance art, mimes, flash mobs etc. I'm indifferent about this. I have been in a flash mob. It was at a friend's wedding. They hated the idea of doing a first dance, so they arranged a few of us to jump in after 20 seconds of them swaying awkwardly as the DJ switched from some cheesy romantic track to Saturday Night by Wickfield. It raised a few eyebrows, it must be said. I remember when the fourth plinth of Trafalgar Square in London was giving over to a rotating piece of public live art every hour. I was almost tempted to suggest something, but it would have probably been kinky and would equally have probably therefore been allocated the 3am to 4am slot. I did not apply. Though, I always had an idea that it would be cool to have a public display in a city square with a live-action Space Invader game, where rows of people move in regimented lines while someone a few metres away throws tennis balls at them. Sounds like it's probably something for the Edinburgh Fringe, which I've never been to, because frankly, holistically, sounds like hell. So now we know what street art covers. The next question is, what do we like about it? Street art, very cool thing. Um, particularly graffiti, more probably more than anything else, I think was was the street art that I latched onto the most. Stuff that's properly mind-bending as, as street art is very, very cool. I like the stuff that plays with the mind a bit. But I like seeing the, the giant 3D mind-bending chalk drawings that, that get done on the floor. Uh, I think they're phenomenal. The ones that um they're they're so realistic they look you, you don't realise it's painted on a wall like very very much like a Warner Brothers sort of you know a Wile E Coyote Roadrunner cartoon when they paint paint the tunnel on a wall it's that real you you run into it that sort of stuff's very cool so yeah I I like it when it's surprised you know you you go to a city that you think's quite ooh very posh and whatever else and then you walk a corner and there's like a giant chameleon painted at the side of the building uh, it's, it so it adds a lot of vibrancy and variety to those cities. Someone else who likes street art is Amanda Kendall of the Not A Ballerina blog and Thoughtful Travel podcast. Indeed, she did a whole episode dedicated to street art a couple of years ago. Here she is now, though, talking about why and what she likes about it. So I really, really love coming across street art when I travel. I think I love that street art is so accessible. You know, it's just there. It's in front of you. It's open to everyone. It's fun. It's interesting. It's sometimes educational. Everyone can see it. You don't have to decide to go to an art gallery, etc. And I mean, one of the most fun experiences I've had with street art was in Penang in Malaysia, traveling with my son. And he was, I think, almost four. So, you know, pretty young and not necessarily easy to keep entertained. Uh, But the masses of street art throughout Penang, especially um, there's, you know, a series by a 
oh, I think he was a Lithuanian artist, which is kind of random and weird, but uh, they were just really, you know, I don't know, really fun and uh, really, you know, just you could stare for ages. There was, you know, like an enormous mural of a of a girl on the side of a of a tall, maybe three four story building that towers over you. Just really, you know, really engaging kind of street art. So I often look up street art information now ahead of visiting somewhere new. I love it. I also want to bring in Momtaz. This is a lady I was introduced to at the Traverse Conference in Burdeno last year. Our mutual friend Dave saying, here's someone even more colourful than you. To be fair, colour is Momtaz's entire brand and she even has a podcast called Hello Colour. You heard her in the introduction to this pod, but here she is talking about what she likes most about street art herself. Hi, I'm Momtaz and I love street art. Wherever I go in the world, I always track it down. It could be on a city break or even in a random fishing village. It's always possible to find an incredible hand-painted mural or even just a bit of a classic graffiti tag. One of the reasons I really like street art is because I'm absolutely obsessed with colour. So whenever I go away, I do this thing called rainbow hunting, which is a bit of an activity where I literally just walk around seeking out colour. It can come in so many different forms. It could be in the architecture, it could be in shops, but more often or not, I actually find that in the street art. It's hard to explain why it interests me. I'm drawn to it partly for its slightly illicit nature, its out-of-placeness, similar to maybe why I like abandoned places and post-industrial dereliction, and the two do often go hand in hand, for sure. But seeing a colourful painting on the side of an alley wall or the shutters of a closed shop make me go, oh, I wasn't expecting that there, then. Like Montaz, I am attracted to colour, but also to content. Pure tagging doesn't interest me much, even if it's bright and bold tag. I like my street art to tell a story in one picture to fire the imagination or to be something which meets other interests of mine a scene that feels like it's come from a fantasy or a sci-fi story for example or a well-drawn cartoon image or well you'll know some of my other interests hobbies and preferences and i'll happily veer into a side street if i suddenly spot something interesting or even journey right back a mile to take a closer look at something i've seen from a passing bus the sort of thing i did in santiago de chile actually one caveat though i'm not a very arty person in general, and, for example, traditional art galleries bore me. Granted, traditional art galleries often have entire floors devoted to 16th century religious iconography, and, to be honest, once you've seen one sepia depiction of the Virgin Mary having given birth, you've seen them all. But I'm also talking about art in general. Oh, there's a painting of a vase of sunflowers. And? It's one of the most expensive paintings in the world. Why? I've no interest in the subject matter when it's in front of me in real life, so why would I fawn over a painting of it? It's... I find a lot of still life quite dull. Landscapes are okay, but I'm British and there's a tendency for predominantly English-based landscape artists to paint predominantly Middle England because of reasons of class. And when I'm hiking, I prefer to do so in the more hilly, cliffy, rocky scenery of the north than the endless fields and farms south of the A47. Alas, traditional painters tended to be southern. Oh look, there's a farm wagon in a river. Isn't that a spectacular representation of rural England? Well, yes, it's painted well, but it's a boring subject. It's a flat field with some trees and a river with a wagon in it. If I were hiking, I'd probably pass it by without noticing it, because it's it's the green equivalent of beige. Give me wild open spaces, give me rocky paths, give me ruined huts above vast lakes, give me distant hills capped with snow, while streams roll through broken, mossy land through boulders. But the price of art is largely set by rich businessmen with no imagination. 
Adam has views on the modern art world, which initially felt out of scope for this pod, but as I'm very unlikely to ever do a pod on contemporary art itself, because it felt relevant to thoughts on public art and artists who sell out, and simply because it amused me, I've slotted it in. I, I usually have a little bit of a bugbear with some of the more contemporary stuff and some of the modern stuff. So when that, because it, it gets to that point where, like when I went to the Tate years ago and it was when they had the display on the, the woman who had done the untidy bed and it just got to a point where it's like hey, you can make anything in your world art as long as you can have a justification for it and a little plaque that describes why and then you can just say there you go it's it's art because i joked about doing something i was like you know can we just take a fence panel and just smash it to bits and just call it the rickety fence and it represents the decline of humankind as we know it in society it was once a strong structure, and now it's fell apart. And that's it. And, and some twat would buy it. You know they would. They'd be sitting there going, oh my God, yes, here's £45,000 for your fence panel. And it's just, you know, could I do it again and get a different colour fence panel, smash that up and put the decline of society part two and sell it for as much, you know. And it just took, to me, it takes the actual artistic value out of something that took a long time to do, some energy, some, edu- uh, some, some effort and some imagination to go into to creating something that was you know, really, really cool looking, whether it's abstract or super realistic, either way. And maybe that's a part of it. Street art, however you want to define it, is largely that of the people, rather than the corporations and the art world. It's a bit more raw, but it's also a bit more genuine. It's created more with the vibe of what matters, with what people want to create, rather than what sells. Plus, essentially, I like the concept of street art because it's more relatable. It means more to my personal experiences. But I guess, more importantly, it makes me think, why that? Why here? Why then? It's not a question of quality, it's a question of accessibility. I can't relate to a farm wagon or a bowl of sunflowers, but I can relate to a barefoot girl lying in the grass, or an image of someone dropping an object out of a high window and it landing on someone below. The former was the image I trawled through Santiago's suburbs for, while I saw the latter in Brussels. As we'll hear later, Brussels is weird. Sarah Irving also talks about this sense of community and belonging, and it's a subject we'll come back to later too. I think street art offers a sense of belonging, whether it comes from the group of artists you see regularly painting together, the shared social and political messaging, or the way to publicly express yourself anonymously. It's a link between people and the city. It can brighten your day with a spot of humour, some colour in a typically dank part of town, and open up conversations about the messages being shared. The colourful murals that brighten the street encourage you to explore and learn about an area, They often tell stories and invite you to get to know the space better through the work and through the location. Brightly coloured angular artworks along the canals bring a simple joy to an often forgotten space in urban settings. And the scrawled dicks and sayings bring a smile to your face when you're going about your regular business. Someone took the time to write or draw something in the public domain to share something that was on their mind. The least we can do is pay attention. But just back to the idea of artists selling out. This is slightly beyond the scope of this pod, but it's worth mentioning that most street artists don't earn a living from it. In these days of Instagram and TikTok, etc., they can use their work as a kind of portfolio and encourage people to follow them and gain a career that way. But that, like in the travel blogging world, only happens to the select few. Given culture and society tends to look down on street art anyway as being everything from not really art all the way to vandalism, many street artists use pseudonyms and protect their identity in other ways in a sense actively not drawing attention to themselves out with their own peer group. Mumtaz has a thought on the promotion of street artists. One of the things I feel a bit nervous about 
photographing street art is it's actually quite hard to sometimes find the artist and then to credit them. So whenever I take photos of street art and I am that person that will stand in front and do a selfie or ask someone to take a photo in front of a gorgeous colourful mural. But then later on, it's actually quite hard to know who to thank who for painting it. And sometimes I think it's actually really mean to post some street art and say how great it is and then not to credit the artist. So I am a bit torn with that. I do try. I look for their tag. If they've got their Instagram up there, I will try and use it. But it's not always possible. And then you get artists like Banksy, a genuine street artist who's transcended into something of a pop culture icon worth millions. His style tends to be politically charged, then still art, quick to apply and to the point. And he's obviously got a very large and cult following. And yet if anyone else did exactly those kind of things, the council would clean it up quicker than you could say Balloon Girl. What makes Banksy different? Has he sold out to capitalist culture? How has he managed to create a brand when others can barely create an alleyway? Does he feel he's sacrificed anything to gain that level of prestige and in a sense immunity? Obviously, I'm not in a position to ask him that. If I was... I wouldn't be doing this pod. It does bring back to mind though the question of what is art, and if the answer is what capitalism tells it it is, then what does that tell us about our society, our tastes and our prejudices? How can we be certain what good talent and creativity are? Especially given art culture is often seen as white, male, very middle class and allonormative, while street art generally isn't. I can't answer that. All I can tell you is what I find aesthetically attractive in art. Not sunflowers at any rate. If only he'd painted a vase of daisies. The city that, in my experience, has the most street and public art is Brussels. Indeed, it's one of the main attractions of the city, as well as being, obviously, one of the cheapest. There's something pretty much on every street, if you look hard enough, from paintings on the walls to sculptures on the street corners. As a culture in general, Belgium is very much cartoon central. Several incredibly popular cartoon strips have been created in the country, notably Spirou, Lucky Luke and, of course, Tintin. The culture of cartoon art is so strong there's a museum dedicated entirely to it in Brussels, the Centre Belge de Bande Dessinée. It's built on several floors, displays extracts from all manner of cartoon strips, and has a very in-depth biographical section of many of the area's most famous and influential cartoonists, complete with examples of their work and items from their studios. So you get to see, for example, the desk layout that Mark Sleen would have used. Many famous cartoon creations are present, including mini statues of Tintin, but also, though not mentioned anywhere within the centre itself, probably because the creators were French, my personal favourite are Asterix. Comics are also known as the Ninth Art, and I keep wondering what the other eight are. And they've always been very big in Belgium. Actually, to be honest, it's big across Francophone Europe, although there's a strong Dutch contingent too in Belgium, including Sleen and Willy van der Steen. Comic and cartoon are sometimes seen as a bit of a loaded word in English, as they imply drawings for kids, usually with comedic effect. And while many of these Belgian cartoonists do draw and write to create laughs amongst the readership, they are often satirical, parodic, and with adult themes and jokes. It's a serious art form, and indeed the phrase ninth art can be seen to demonstrate the artistic nature of them, not just the comment. And I mention this as background because Brussels itself is a city full of representations of comic art on the streets, mainly in the form of murals. Some of them represent characters fundamental to Belgian culture, often drawn by the creators themselves, but many of them faithfully in their style. For example, the characters of Tintin and the Thompson twins appear, accurately drawn on one wall, despite Hergé having been dead since 1983. AI won't solve that problem. 
Other characters that have entire tower blocks devoted to them are much more famous domestically than internationally. One such is drawing around three stories up on a blank wall of what appears to be an anthropomorphic cat building a wall. This is Le Chat, a famous character in Belgium drawn by Philippe Gelluc, whose standard shtick is to appear in one-panel cartoons with a somewhat surrealist and absurdist bent. Many of the scenes drawn though don't depict famous characters, but instead are bespoke to the environment that they're in. Some of them are humorous, such as one artwork that makes use of the tall thin wall that would otherwise have been blank or daubed in tagging graffiti. And as I mentioned earlier, that's where a boy at the top drops something out of a window that hits a man walking at ground level. Easily relatable, it's next to a window. It's a long drop. Others are created to artistically set a particular scene, such as one drawn in a very 1920s American film noir style, depicting a well-dressed man and a woman leaving a bar at dusk. Still others are socio-political, gay rights, urban regeneration, etc. The majority of them, though, appear merely random, just simply pretty works of art that brighten up otherwise blank walls. If only all cities did this. It's probably not surprising that you can get a town plan of the city centre and find the designated mirrors listed on it. In effect, you can take yourself on a huge self-guided street art tour. Although, be aware that there are so many of them that if you want to see them all, it will be a massive undertaking that will cover the majority of the day and seriously smash your step count. Also note that while the map tells you roughly where they are, it doesn't give you a precise location, so some of them might take a little bit of searching for. Here's a hint. Look up. Nor does it give you any background information about them. I mean, I find it fun to, you know, find out more about them in research afterwards, but again, your mileage may vary. Aside from those murals, Brussels is one of those cities, like Stockholm and Moscow, whose metro system acts as an art gallery. As you'll hear later, I'm sure my friend Adam would approve. Notable stations I came across again, your mileage may vary, include Huber Brugman, where both sides of the rail tunnel are painted with artwork laid out like the set of film slides or depth of field photos of a woman dancing. She starts off standing still and playing at one end of one of the platforms, but by the other end she's dancing with a flourish. And then the opposite side of the platform has the same on the walls, but with more people and a much more obviously motion-blurred background. It's not relevant that she's barefoot. Not at all. St. Catherine has plain white walls laden with what has gives the effects of hand-drawn large flowers of various species. Roses and daffodils, that sort of thing. And then we have Malbeek, where the artwork on the walls takes the form of simply drawn outlined heads in a rather modernist, almost cartoonist style. Apparently these are portraits by the Dutch artist Benoit van Innes. So now you know. Now, I briefly mentioned Stockholm there. Now, Stockholm is, of course, very famous for its metro system. Three lines and a hundred stations, many of which are artistic destinations in their own right. Indeed, it's believed that at least 90 of them have some kind of art installation on them, either sculpture on the platform or art along the walls, or even just in the way they've been designed. Of the three lines, the most interesting for decor in general is the blue line, which is the newest, even so it's still like two weeks younger than I am. But as a whole, the system is being called the world's longest art gallery. And... Each of the artworks is unique to that station, so every station is completely different. Some of the stations on the line look like they've been built literally into the cave in the rock, including Stereon, where there's a weird painted rainbow effect. If you search for Stockholm Metro, this is likely to be one of the first you'll see, along with Radhuset and Solna Central, which is very striking with red rock ceilings and a red-green forest scenes along the station walls. Other interesting stations include Thorild's Plan, which has been decorated in images that seem to have come out of an 8-bit computer game, Tenster, with its graffiti-like signs and doodles in different languages, our research tells me that it's a strongly immigrant area, Rizna, with what I found out is basically the whole history of the Rizna area written in handwriting on the sides of the walls, 
and Solna Strand, which is great if you like looking at weird cubes of sky. Another place with government-approved street art, albeit for different reasons, is Quebec City. Under the bridges that mark the junctions of Route 440 and 175, just northwest of the city centre, is a part building site, part derelict land posing as a car park. It's been like this for several years. Indeed, I was introduced to it on my previous visit to the city in late 2013, and it looked exactly the same five years later. Its unloved vista made it the haunt of many a local graffiti and street artist, and no sooner did the council clean it all up, they returned. Eventually, the council caved in and allowed the street artists free reign over the columns that support the flyovers. Largely self-policing, this is the end result. Incredibly ornate and fancy artworks that turn an otherwise drab part of the city into something with a bit of colour. Murals that cover the columns from bottom to top, different on both sides, visualising everything from fantasies of Persia to fairy tales to cartoons. I'll grant you the surrounds still look ugly, but at least it's a start. But to be fair, it's not jarring when compared with the rest of the city, or indeed the rest of Quebec province. Montreal, for instance, is full of street art, and it's one of those cities you could probably easily fill a couple of hours walking around plotting it all, which is why I'm not going to mention it more on this podcast. But this seems like a perfect time to talk about a more similar scheme, somewhere much closer to home. Now, I currently live in Glasgow, as you know, and it might surprise you to know that this city is actually quite noted for its art scene, especially its street art. The main focus is the Glasgow Mural Trail. This is a series of, currently, 29 pieces of wall art scattered around the city centre, and a couple of spots just outside. The idea is to turn otherwise vacant or tired areas into more lively and aesthetic places that look pretty, places in the city centre that would be likely to be seen by at least some locals and tourists, and encouraging people to visit previously lesser popular parts of the city centre, which has the knock-on effect of helping local businesses. The first of these pieces of art was painted in 2008 and it's still an ongoing process, so no doubt that 29 will expand in the years to come. There's no real pattern to them. The idea is to make them appeal to all tastes. If you don't like one, next could be, as they say, right up your alley. Some of the murals present themes specific to Glasgow. For instance, near the University of Strathclyde complex is a painting by the artist Smug of the two saints long associated with the city, St Enoch, cradling the child St Mungo. A sibling piece of an older St Mungo, again by Smug, is nearby. There's also two murals, both by the artist Rogue One, commemorating local icon Billy Connolly. And Rogue One is also responsible for two pieces I often end up walking past. One, on a side street in the very centre of the city, is of a taxi being lifted by balloons, and the piece is called the world's most economical taxi. The other is just off one of the main streets near a pub I frequent, and features two girls blowing bubbles. You can see the variation of these murals already. Others include a 200-metre celebration of the University of Strathclyde, a couple of representations of Glasgow culture and life from times past, a swimmer and a badminton player to commemorate the Commonwealth Games in 2014, there's a similar mural over in the western suburb of Partick depicting a rugby player, a panda, a crocodile, some birds, and a series of cats, and of all things, a painting of a chocolate bar and commenting cynically about the rising costs of a childhood suite. Over in the west of the city, in the aforementioned Partick, there's an old warehouse and car park next to a railway viaduct, sandwiched between a student area and a very industrial zone. It used to be a galvanizers from the shipbuilding days and their associated yard space. Now, though, this is the setting for SWG3, an indoor indie market and outdoor street art exhibition. Local graffiti artists can be seen painting on the maze-like walls in the open air, while the old warehouse has been converted into a monthly-themed market and real ale arena. There's a DJ in residence, too, and the back room looks like it works as a nightclub-type venue. Now, if I ever do a podcast on Glasgow, I'll talk about more about the venue in general, but in this pod, I'm going to concentrate on the street art side. 
Every year, they host a street art and graffiti festival called Yardworks. And indeed, the next one as I type is in just over a month's time, over the weekend of the 5th to the 7th of May 2023. Sadly, I'll be in Italy then, but I'm sure there'll be other opportunities. SWG3 describe themselves as being a writer's celebration of colour, creativity and collaboration. And present are scheduled to be many of notable artists from over the world, including Morph, Metamorphius with an F, one of the most well-known street artists, Jay Kays, a Spanish artist who's done a lot of murals around London's Brick Lane, and Epod, who uses his skills as a draftsman and fashion designer to create some unique and distinctive art. Outside of the festival, though, SWG3, through the Yardworks subsid, provide a safe environment for urban artists of all type to develop and learn. Just after the festival, they'll open up a specialist studio, but otherwise they run a whole series of community-focused projects allowing artists to create, while at the same time improving the ambience of otherwise derelict or ugly places, which would be the target of less aesthetic tagging and miscellany. One of the main examples of this is that they're in partnership with, of all people, Network Rail. Now, you probably all know that railways and graffiti are a very common mix, as per the 1970s in New York and Philadelphia. But this partnership allows artists to paint safely and legally in areas that would otherwise be off-limits, because nothing cramps your artistic style like being hit by a train. I remember all those 1970s public information films. While at the same time improving the look of places the network rail might otherwise be less inclined to clean up. Partly because a clean wall might attract road street artists, including the railway viaduct arches that pass close to the SWG3 site. This is claimed to be Scotland's largest outdoor street art site, as well as many railway stations across Glasgow and beyond, even including Edinburgh Waverley. Some of the artists involved have also been those responsible for the Glasgow Mural Trail too, like Smug and the Cobalt Collective. Adam points out that this is one of his favourite forms of street art. I love street art, for the most part. It's like any art, it's subjective to individual taste. I've always liked really big, bold, interesting graffiti. Um, used to love seeing it on like the sides of trains and stuff when I've been, particularly when I went to France, um, and you see it with graffiti, the, like, the entire side of a um, train carriage and stuff. I used to like when I used to go on trains, you know, going through train tunnels, and you'd see it all on bridges and you know, on the outside of tunnels, inside of tunnels, on the walls. It always made the journey a little bit more decorative than just looking at buildings when you're going through residential areas and built-up areas, as opposed to obviously going through nature. But yeah, but my favourite places to see it, I think, motorway journeys, train journeys, but you know, very long, boring, monotonous, repetitive sort of scenery that you're going to get when it's just intermingled into that in some way, shape or form. Note that the art created by the SWG3 people is regularly updated and painted over with new concepts to keep it fresh and pertinent. This included some direct environmental themes during COP26, the site of which was in direct eyeline to the artwork. Other community projects they do include holding informative talks about street art in general, working with local residents and associations to brighten up everyday communities, and work with people at all levels from individuals to corporations to offer bespoke artwork, just like artists would. This means you, yes you, could have a genuine street art composition of your liking hanging on your wall. Or on your wall, to be honest. I've no idea how much it would cost. And my tastes are niche. Tempting, though. Kate Frankie also talks about this community aspect to street art. But also it's kind of um, a owning of like the area and a, a putting a stamp on it and the residents of a place kind of having some say over how it looks and, and what kind of happens there. And it can be really inspiring and um, really creative and actually quite beautiful. Um, or 
shocking and you know different um i remember bologna as well walking around there and particularly the kind of student i mean it's a big student city but like some of the streets there um where a lot of students would hang out a lot of really interesting and kind of thought-provoking art um and i just think there's a real place for it and I think I'd like to go and explore more and see more street art as well. Um, and maybe also get to kind of meet artists and people who are reviving places kind of with their artwork. That would be really cool. In a city with a lot of street art, one of the ways to explore it is on a tour. Now this can be self-guided with a published map, guidebook or website detail, or even an audiobook. Both Brussels and Glasgow have websites that list where all the murals are, what each one of them is, and even how to find them. Alternatively, some cities have guided tours with a tour guide who will take you around all the interesting spots. Quite often, these are run by the same people who do those free walking tours of the city, all I note that street art tours specifically themselves tend to be specialist and therefore payable and bookable in advance, rather than just turn up and go. I've taken specialist tours like that in a few cities, including Bucharest, London and Prague, as well as street art being well indicated on general walking tours in places like Santiago and Valparaiso in Chile, and Derry and Belfast in Northern Ireland. The latter I've gone into much more detail in my previous pod about Northern Ireland trip. Suffice to say that if you think street art can get political, oh my, do I have a few streets for you to explore. The tour in Bucharest was advertised as more of an alternative tour, covering the back streets of the city, and indeed sometimes literally down streets that felt off the map, that were still derelict from communist days, past buildings that were glorious in facade, but which were mere hulks inside, which was otherwise desolation, and which were, you know, theoretically up for rent, but which had been used by squatters for quite some time. A side of the city that people don't normally see as tourists. That tour also took us into a couple of art gallery cum cafes and at one point went up inside a five-storey car garage whose slipway walls had been painted by street artists. So obviously there's a strong connection between those communities and street art. So on the tour we got to learn about the different people who left their marks in the city, including an artist called Queeby who draws what are described as square cats. Look, it's easy to see than describe, but essentially imagine someone drawing a fantastical representation of a cat but with corners instead of curves. Research suggests he was the first graffiti artist in Romania to have an album published back in the day. I visited before Instagram had really taken off. The other artist we saw a lot of was Creatori Dragute, or Cute Creatures. Her signature was to stick very colourful small images of very artistic representations of frogs, axolotl, cats, etc. onto walls. Research suggests she's now working as a tattoo artist in Bristol. Someone who went on such a tour on one of her travels was Amanda Kendall. I was up in Broome in the north of Western Australia and I happened to meet a guy who ran a street art walking tour and I thought, well, that sounds amazing. I'd love to do it. So I went along and it was just a perfect experience. So Broome is a town with lots and lots of parts to its history and background from Indigenous people. Um, There's been a pearling industry, uh, consequently large Chinese and Japanese population, uh, all sorts of you know different things, very different to any other parts of Australia. And the cool thing that they've done up there is uh, the guide explained to me something like this, I think I've got it right, that developers who were building in the city, or in the town, sorry, in the town, um, were required, if their development was over $2 million, they were required to spend 1% of their budget on public art. They could either do public art themselves or they could give money to the Shire to use. I think a lot of them did the latter. But as a result, there is public art, street art, 
all throughout the centre of Broome. And um, it was just such a fabulous way to learn more about the history and background of the town. And I think if you just are there, even as a, I'm just going to go up and hang out in, you know, tropical warmth tourist, you're still going to see it and question it. Oh, okay, what's this one about? Oh, what's this about the pearling industry? And you, you know, just inevitably learn something from it. And of course, it's attractive and interesting and, you know, just all round good. It helps on these tours to be guided by someone in the local scene so they can answer questions you have and bring a bit of background and explanation rather than just passing a mural and going, yeah, this is famous, this was painted by Smug, let's move on. And this seemed to be the issue that Momtaz had one time, as she explains. I prefer going on my own street art wonders than going on organised street art tours. And one of the reasons is that I once booked a street art tour in Sofia, Bulgaria. And the problem was they were rushing us around so much that I actually wanted to stop and take photos where they just wanted to rush through the history. And at one point, I was actually so busy taking a photo that I didn't realise the tour had moved on and I actually got lost and separated from them. Believe it or not, I found them an hour and a half later. So I still had the drink at the end in the bar, but I missed out on what they saw. And I vowed after that, I'm just going to stick to doing it my way. Another place with a selection of street art is Palestine. And Momtaz talks about her visit there. The best street art I've seen has to be in Palestine. Now, there's an area in Bethlehem where you will find Banksy's Hotel. It's called the Walled Off Hotel and it's surrounded by the walls that go around Bethlehem. It's politically charged, it's filled with emotion and it really is something that will completely captivate you. There's actually a shop, Banks's shop, that sells spray can art, which you can actually buy and contribute to these walls. What's really interesting is that you won't really see this street art reported. If you're in that part of the world, you're probably going to be told that that's an unsafe place to visit. But actually, if you do make the trek to go there, you are in for an absolute treat because the work there is so personal. It's really going to fire up your emotions and I really recommend seeing that kind of artwork and comparing it to the more planned murals that you get in city centres. I have been to the region, though it was almost exactly 10 years ago, so I imagine a lot of the artwork I saw and vibe I experienced there has changed. Probably ought to do a pod on that journey at some point in another of my series of past adventures in the pre-smartphone era. Obviously, there are wider political, cultural and moral implications about a visit there, but on the subject of street art alone, it's definitely a place worth seeing. It's amazing how pretty you can make a 10-metre-tall concrete wall. Obviously, much of it is very political in outlook, with references to freedom, oppression, culture and history, but whatever side you're on, it's definitely worth looking at. Is that neutral enough? I don't want to be on a hit list from either side. Speaking of walls and politics, it would be remiss of me not to mention the East Side Gallery in Berlin. This is the famous piece of preserved Berlin Wall on the eastern side of the city in Friedrichshain. It's just over 1,300 metres long and in a way channels its previous existence as a barrier. See, back in the day, although the East Berlin side was obviously clearly out of bounds, there was more or less access to the wall itself from the west. 
I mean, the East German war gods didn't like it as technically the entire war was in East Berlin territory, but the legal border was often unmarked and they mostly didn't cause a scene about it. In the late 70s, this section of the border itself was entirely replaced with concrete blocks some four metres high. Shorter than Palestine, yes. And obviously a concrete wall is going to attract graffiti and street artists. When the wall fell, this section remained standing for just long enough to be the gathering point for a whole street art movement, and for historical and memorial purposes, it was allowed to remain in place. It was officially opened as an open-air art gallery in late September 1990, less than a year after the wall was first broken. I guess it's fitting that the remains of the wall have continued to serve the same kind of protest and political vibe today as it's always done. There is, of course, much more to Berlin street art than the wall, and the city as a whole it's well noted for its general alternative scene, sometimes indeed political, sometimes positively hipster, especially near Kreuzberg and Friedrichshain. The scene takes many forms. Old buildings turn into cafes and shops, disused railway yards that have now become hip night spots. And in some areas, and I'm particularly thinking of Schwarzenberg, there's a feeling that maybe the original ethos has sold out. Squatters living freely have become gentrified, and their pads now go for amongst the highest rents in the city. The art itself is varied. Much is mere tagging, more so than, say, Chile. But there's a fair amount of political comment, as you might expect. Some is, however, odd. You've got life-size stentil-like dancers scattered across the city under the tagline, It's time to dance. Whilst elsewhere, random mushrooms and aliens adorn stone walls. If you can tell a lot by a place by its street art, Berlin's tells me it's random, quite funky. Ah, Chile. It's the only country in South America I've visited, and I'm fully aware that the street art in Argentina especially is worth visiting on its own. It's on my list. But in Chile I visited, amongst other places, Santiago de Chile and Valparaiso, two neighbouring large cities, each with their own individual vibe. They're both noted for their street art, which is quite varied in style and detail, but it's everywhere. Examples of across in Santiago include some kind of dystopian cyberpunk scene with a square-headed woman being taken prisoner by a robot with a human head and hundreds of teeth. A chess pawn type figure with a yin-yang style face and a pointed cone where its nose should be. And two deep sea divers on the shutters of a fishmonger's. With bubbles. Many of them that my general walking tour guides pointed out were by the artist Inti. He was born in Valparaiso, but operated for over a decade in both cities, as well as attending fine art school, and is now apparently quite a global name. My visit was in mid-2014. Much of his work is huge, covering entire buildings' walls from top to bottom, and has a tendency to use imagery that directly references indigenous and Andean cultures, concentrating on figures that often resemble dolls or puppets. Valparaiso is quite a hilly city. There's approximately 40 of them, though some are more populous than others. And each of the hills has its own little character. So a couple are artsy. There's one that's bohemian, one near the port is pretty much seen as the local no-go area. Not that that means anything other than a touch of elitism. Part of the city is also a UNESCO World Heritage Site, due to the layout, design and colour of the houses. Some of which is due to residents snaffling things off boats. For example, the corrugated metal used as ballast, which has been added to the outside of a lot of the houses to make them rain resistant. While the houses are often painted with leftover paint from ships, hence why they're all different colours. And that in itself is a form of street art and counts. But the city is much more than that. Many of those hillsides are also covered with small alleyways, which, as an aside, add to the charm. They're making it tough to fight fires, which are more common than you'd hope because of the wild and wonderful electricity cabling and people illegally connecting to the network. And obviously, many of these alleyways are covered in street art. Here, residents have offered their walls to the street artists to brighten them up a little and to prevent the same walls being used by the graffiti taggers. And there's a tacit understanding between the two. This means that walking up and down the many hills, or taking the many funiculars, 
you get to see a lot of small, almost bespoke pieces. One of the roads in the city, a steep, cobbled slope, has a long mural across the top that reads, We are not hippies, we are happies. Obviously, I took a selfie. And a foot selfie. Now, I've talked a lot in this pod so far about street art in relation to paintings and stickers, predominantly two-dimensional art. However, there's another form of street art to consider, and that's what you might also term public art. Here I'm talking mostly of sculpted artworks, statues, arguably even ornate fountains, and art created for a particular purpose and theme. By its very nature, most public and street art of this kind is financed by at least the local councils. Putting up a three-dimensional piece in a public square will be very quickly stopped and the artists arrested on anything from a public order offence to destruction of property, from violating planning regulations to blocking a public highway. Much of this art is created for a specific purpose, to either commemorate a person or an event, or to promote something about the place in general and make it seem more welcoming or interesting. The city of Perth in Australia, for instance, has a small grassy park just off one of the main streets in the city centre, where there are three life-size silicone bronze kangaroos. These were cast in 1998 by Charlie Smith and Joan Walsh-Smith as part of the Perth A City for People project, overseen by the Government of Western Australia. You can walk up to them and pose next to them, like a tourist would. Like I did, obviously. Similarly, nearby Fremantle has The Rainbow. A 9 metre high, 19 metre long, 66 tonne installation made up of nine shipping containers, each painted in a different colour. I'm aware how many colours there are in a rainbow. I'm not Marcus Canning, I didn't create it. It's designed as a symbol of hope for the future, while still referencing Fremantle's past as a shipping port. It's also not the sort of thing you can put up at 2.36am and hope nobody notices. Another piece in Fremantle was the Arc d'Ellipse by Phyllis Verini, which involved him sticking pieces of yellow foil across many of the buildings on the high street. It was installed in October 2017 as part of the celebrations for the High Tide Public Art Project and the Fremantle Festival, and was a very intricate optical illusion. From the street it looked just like random pieces of yellow foil, but standing at the end of the street, on a bank next to the sea, the angle of viewing meant that the pieces joined together to form what looked like concentric circles. This, however, showed up one of the problems with street art. Even that funded and implemented by the local government since there then became an argument about who'd pay for the repairs to the buildings if the foil damaged them. Which it did. The city, apparently, and therefore the taxpayer. Just so as you know. Government-funded art projects can be quite odd. On a hillside overlooking the Kosovan town of Mitrovica, which lies directly on the river that divides the Serbian-majority part of town from the Albanian-majority part, is a monument. It's 19 metres tall, made of concrete, and looks a little like the Greek letter pi. It was erected in 1973 by Bogdan Bogdanovich, and a friend in the town told me it was part of a series of symbolic statues all over Yugoslavia, commissioned by then-President Tito, each of which related to the place in question. Mitrovica is a mining town. The nearby Trepka mine is one of the leading employees in Kosovo, and one of the main issues in Kosovo-Serb relations. The name Mitrovica itself means womb of money, and there was a phrase, Trepka works, Belgrade creates, that summarised the relationship between the two, Mitrovica being where the wealth came from that Belgrade then spent. So allegedly, this monument represents a cradle continuing the womb theme to show that this is where Yugoslavia's power was created and nurtured. It's also designated as a memorial to those miners who lost their lives in World War II, as obviously a mine as important as this would be very much a powerhouse in the war effort. Much smaller, and much closer to where I used to live, 
is another piece of public art dedicated to industry, albeit in this case a long dead one. Just outside Bolsover Town Centre in Derbyshire, remember, everywhere is interesting. On a dead railway line that's now a public footpath, the Stockley Trail, is a sculpture from 2000 called Breaking the Mould. It's by a sculptor called Andrew McKeown, who works primarily in iron and steel, and has created many local interest pieces around the country. This particular one is the first of 21 in a series called Changing Places, which symbolise the changing nature of many of the UK's ex-industrial heartlands. The specific work is of an old industrial moulding, broken and no longer used, but in the centre of it a seed is sprouting, representing the change of the town from its industrial past to its new future. Bolsover has a few new business parks and a motorway junction was recently opened to serve the town directly. There is growing hope here. Similar A New Hope tile sculptures and public art pieces exist in many of the old mining and industrial towns around the UK, and especially in my home area of Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire. Indeed, Kirkby and Ashfield itself, as well as the cricketing statues, now has a weird flame-shaped object built out of metal in the crossroads in the very centre of the town. Possibly a leaf. It's a little unclear. It should be a flame, because it says something about not forgetting the past, but letting it be reborn into a new industry. And of course, one of the main industries there in the past was mining. It seems to have been mostly ignored. In nearby Clipston, in the Vicar Water Country Park, is a 10 metre high metallic statue of a golden hand. Weirdly, no one seems to know why, other than it was commissioned around the turn of the millennium by the cycling group Sustrans, who are responsible for a lot of those dead railway lines becoming cycle and footpaths. Possibly it's a beckoning to the old mining industry as well, the unused headstocks of the local pit are visible behind it, and which themselves have been along the subject of a do we knock them down or do we count them as art these days dispute. Over in Rill, a seaside resort in North Wales, long past its best, the council have used public art to try and prettify the town after years of neglect. It's what's known as Drift Park, the idea being to create sculptures, pavement and wall art, and interactive features such as water jets that evoke a sense of the sea, the beach, and the way a seashore creates a natural and unique environment. And an example there included a metallic relief structure of a girl playing and running, presumably in the sand, and a display known as Postcards from Rill, where events and people from the town are printed on tiles on the wall, itself shaped like a sea's wave. Not all public art is quite so aspirational. Rotterdam, for instance, is noted for a statue of Santa Claus holding a Christmas tree. At least, that's the official explanation. It was constructed in 2001 by American artist Paul McCarthy and has moved around the city a bit since then, mainly because it doesn't look like a Christmas tree. In fact, when I first saw it, I hadn't got a clue what it was supposed to be, but I was fairly sure that it wasn't supposed to be what it actually looked like. What it looks like, as all full swap radio listeners will already know, is a butt plug. That it's about the same size as the statue of the Santa himself doesn't help matters. It was meant to be a Christmas tree, but it more looked like a giant green butt plug. And I just wanted to know who was the head of making decisions for that one. Don't we all, Adam? Don't we all? Sometimes public art can seem a little out of place, as you can tell. In Chesterfield in the UK, in the grounds of the parish church, is a sculpture of a bee. It is called the Queen Bee for fairly self-explanatory reasons. The story behind it is twofold. Following a storm in early 2014, a couple of fairly old and substantial trees were blown down, leaving only the stumps in the ground. The church authorities wanted to replace them with something, and hit upon the idea of commissioning a sculpture, rather than, you know, just replanting the trees. They wanted something that would make a statement. 
Meanwhile, the local council had organised a conference about the plight of bees and the effect of bee loss on the local Peak District, and wanted something to remind the people about the issue. The two parties came to an agreement, and this was the end result. The sculpture is made of wood, specifically the trunk of an old oak tree. It sits on the remains of the blown down trees and was carved by local sculptor Andrew Frost. It weighs about a ton, just over a thousand kilograms, and on the side is written the biblical verse, out of the strong came something sweet. A somewhat dodgy and slightly unfair riddle asked by Samson and referring to bees inside a lion's carcass. Bees don't tend to make nests inside lions. It's not something that would be terribly reasonable for either party. But still, it's a church. That seemed appropriate, I guess. I was talking earlier about street art trails. And Quebec City is a place with a defined public art trail. Two of them involve chairs. On the path along the canal, and seemingly without any apparent reason, is a series of rows of school classroom chairs and desks. Like the sort of thing you'd find in an old primary school, with a desk and the bench seat attached, and designed for one child to sit at. Except they're plastic and bright yellow. It's from local artist Ludovic Boney, and is designed for the precise purpose to just sit and be free to read, work, daydream, whatever. A bit like school. In practice. Elsewhere in the city, in front of the station, there's 40 chairs lined up in different patterns, each with writing from a Quebecois poet. It's said to express movement of the city from the foundation to the present day, or something. This is by another Quebec sculptor, Michel Goulet. And the city itself has a whole series of 10 or 12 displays of public art scattered around the city that you can just walk around in the snow. Another place with public art is London. I mean, we all know London as a whole is noted for its street art, so noted, in fact, that the area around Brick Lane would be enough for a pod on its own, which is why it's not going to be mentioned in this one. And, to a lesser extent, Camden. But we don't talk about Camden. But one area worth noting is in the far south. I mentioned it in my passing in my podcast on South London, but the borough of Sutton, especially Sutton Town Centre, is notable for its large variation of both street art and public art. Now, remember, of course, this is Middle England, where 35% of the borough's area is garden. So if you're thinking of street art in terms of murals of cartoon-like styles in psychedelic colours with political overtones, this is not the place. Some of it is traditional wall art, such as the Sutton Mosaic. This was commissioned in 1994 to celebrate aspects of Sutton's history and legacies, and is made of painted porcelain constructed by two genuine mosaic artists. Oh my God, how middle class is that? Some of the local items represented on it are, you know, old country houses, one of the first iron railways built in the world, lavender, and an old coaching inn. But other art is more sculptural across the town. For example, Sutton Railway Station is the most artistic and designed seating I've seen. Who needs rusting benches or formica seats when you can have wood design with plants in the armrests? In the town centre itself are any number of unusual sculptures, including a couple of random wooden reptiles on the pavement, you know, just chilling, just being there. Sutton's obligatory millennium acknowledgement is a strange-looking object called an armillary. This is a representation of an old-fashioned timepiece and plotter of celestial objects. But here, not only does it tell time, it gives distances to nearby places, like Kingston and Croydon. It was commissioned by, and represents the aims of, Rotary International. Finally, while technically off scope for public art in a sense, the centre of town has a grade two listed old-fashioned signpost, still in situ, that originally served as the sign for the Cock Inn, the old coaching inn and overnight stop on the road out of London. Although the inn was demolished in 1950, the sign and the post remain. 
Adam talks about a couple of other public art pieces that caught his eye, including being equally phased by the sculpture in Kirkby and Ashfield. Yeah, public art sculptures and stuff like that. There's some that are just, again, amazing. Um, I can't think of any that are coming to mind, but you know, you you get them at like seasonal events and they're pretty cool, uh, and then they get taken down and they they they, get, they you know they'll go away, but they're like really 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 pretty. They're, they're fucking, I can't remember what the angel was. There was a, the guy that did. He made an angel out of loads of donated knives and swords because uh, they were they were they were cutting down a knife crime. I remember that. That was incredible. But yeah, the weird flame thing in Kirby's like, what the fuck is that meant to be? <laughs> it's just some local artist's wet dream. I made a thing, it looks like fire, but it's got no meaning behind it. It's just a big silver fiery thing there. Uh, so no, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. It was like a nature reserve in the middle of sort of northwest corner of Vancouver when I was in Canada. And it was hidden away in, the, in their national park, and this like the, na- the national park in Vancouver is like four miles across and right smack bang in the middle. Giant fish, like hand carved wooden fish, that's uh, sat in partially submerged in some water outside this little um, random animal sanctuary that's got like aquatic wildlife and, and actual, you know, your, your mammals and your, your regular sort of wildlife in it. But that was a beautiful piece of art uh, to see, and there was quite a few big sort of artistic stuff statue type sculptures i think there was one that it looked like it was a killer whale made out of lego that was on the uh on the on the waterfront that that was that was pretty spectacular it wasn't made out of lego it was made out of some other stuff but yeah that was pretty cool once again though for the pinnacle of public art like this we can't do much better than brussels like belgium's most famous resident is the mannequin piss which is actually much smaller than you'd imagine seriously Wikipedia says it's two foot tall, but as it's in an alcove on a pedestal and not easy to get to, it's hard to verify. Might rank as one of the least underwhelming tourist attractions in the world. We'll get back to you on that one. Probably deserves a podcast. Anyway, you all know him. Like, There's no polite way of putting this, so here we go. It is a statue of a boy having a piss, hence his name. Literally, little man pissing. There's been a statue here since the late 14th century. This particular chap was designed in the early 1600s, and he stuck away behind railings because, as you might imagine for a small, notable object... There's a tradition of him getting pinched. A second tradition has him being dressed up in seasonal or festive clothing. And since the Belgians love a good festival, seriously, whatever weekend you're in the country, there's a fair chance you'll be able to see some local festival and tradition. This happens quite often. There's a whole host of stories and legends that try to explain its existence, from the defensive valour, child urinates on advancing armies, enemies bombs fuses, all the way to the lost child goes missing, search conducted, child found happily peeing on the side of the street, oblivious to it all. Personally, I think it's just an example of the quirkiness of the Belgians, as a sort of, why not? Now, if that's not quirky enough, more recently he's been joined in Brussels by two other similar statues. The Jenica Piss, a girl squatting and urinating, was installed in 1987, pretty much as a companion to the mannequin piss, in an early example of equal opportunities. Contrary to popular belief, she was not modelled on the hordes of young British hen parties that have lit up Europe since the invention of the package holiday. More recently still, 1998, as if a boy and a girl were not enough, the Het Zinnaker, and more importantly not the Zinnaker piss, was created. This is a dog cocking his leg up on a ballard. Maybe Brussels felt that the boy and the girl needed a pet, or maybe by this point the city council were past caring. Notably though, this particular sculpture is in the fashion district, so there's feeling that this may be just be a damning indictment on the fashion industry. Maybe it's just simply the Belgians are urologically obsessed. 
Incidentally, the term Zinnica is a nickname for people from Brussels and originates from the name given to the stray dogs that congregated around the River Zen in the city, hence its name. There are other weird and wonderful sculptures scattered around Brussels too. Most notable are the Ansbach Fountain, complete with crocodiles that look like they've been captured in mid-dance, and the Statue of Commemoration to the some of the brave but oft-forgotten soldiers of World War I. Brussels is the only memorial I've ever seen to war pigeons. Sometimes, though, public art can be conceptual, ephemeral, and barely even related to anything physical at all. Sometimes the art is the action of creating the art rather than the art itself. Something truly guerrilla that really speaks to the concept of street art in its purest form, completely at odds with government, something anarchistic in scope. One example of this is yarn bombing. This is the practice of decorating public places with knitting. Even in my hometown of Kirkby and Ashfield, the local network shop occasionally had a habit of decorating the local bollards, lampposts, and even the cricketing statues with crocheted and knitted patches and jumpers. While it never lasts very long, it's certainly striking when it does happen. It also has the added benefit, at least as far as the authorities are concerned, of not leaving any lasting damage. Which, as you heard about Fremantle, is not always the case even with government-sanctioned art installations. Yarn bombing and equivalents aren't just a UK phenomenon, though. When I was in uh, Trondheim in, uh, in Norway, one of the weird traditions that they had there was they, they like knitted jumpers for trees. So, in a way, it was like street art, because you, you just walking through and there's like this sort of the, the trees that are planted into concrete uh, into the floor and stuff like that all just leading up into into a, into more rural areas and they've just got this big multicolored rainbow sock up them and it was, it was such a quirky thing to find but it was really beautiful however when it comes to guerrilla public art it would be remiss of me to not mention the most well-known dare i say iconic piece of public art in glasgow it's one thing that many people know about the city, after all, and it's also mm, technically illegal and not at all what the original artist intended. In 1844, Franco-Italian sculptor Carlo Maracchetti, famous for statues, memorials and tombs, and he constructed several of these in Père Lachaise, created a statue of Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington, for Glasgow. He also made one for Leeds. He's also responsible for statues of Victoria and Albert elsewhere in Glasgow. But anyway, this particular statue was of pretty much no significance other than, you know, being a statue of a war general and a former prime minister, albeit not for very long. I did a previous podcast on that when I talked about when public disorder and rioting makes changes. And statues like it remain unperturbed to this day across the country. This particular statue is a great Category A listed sculpture, but I imagine that's quite common for statues. We do like our statues in this country, seek to protect them at all costs, even if someone decides to pull them down and throw them in the river like they did a couple of years ago in Bristol. Part of me thinks you couldn't do that in Glasgow. Probably float. However, for reasons lost in the midst of time, but all reports suggested it had something to do with alcohol, probably book fast. At some point in the 1980s, no one's quite sure, but a BBC News article in 2000 said it had been there 10 years. Other sources suggest this is an underestimate. An unknown person on an unknown date climbed up the statue and put a traffic cone on its head. This is the sort of student hijinks that is generally forgotten about the next day. The cone removed, no one gives it a second look. It just becomes a funny story to tell at parties. Except, on this occasion, it came back. I have genuinely no idea what possessed someone to be determined enough to repeatedly return the cone to the statue's head. And while in the months beyond it might have been the same person, clearly it soon became a cultural movement rather than just one drunk reveller with a cone. Dyspraxic me is wondering how they even climbed the statue with a cone while inebriated in the first place. Anyway, it's still there now. 
In 2013, so maybe 25 years after the first hat, the city council tried to prevent this by proposing to raise the plinth by six foot, just over one metre eighty. This was for two reasons. Firstly, the statue itself was becoming quite damaged by the repeated cone clambering. As early as 2005, it had been reported that his spurs and half of his sword was gone, while the scenes of the Battle of Waterloo on the statue's plinth had been badly worn. But also for genuine fears for safety and liability, the plinth is pretty high up as it is and the statue is on a horse, pretty life size, so it's a long way down if you slip and fall while attempting the cone retrieval. It was also calculated that removing the cone costs the council and therefore the taxpayer about £100 per pop, which adds up over the course of a year. There was also a feeling that the cone was becoming a bit old hat and not something the council wanted Glasgow to be known for. After all, there's so much else here. I've blogged about Glasgow before, and there will be a pod about it later in the year. However, by this point, the cone had become such a strong part of Glasgow culture that a counter-petition on change.org garnered over 10,000 signatures, while according to STV, a corresponding Facebook page got 72,000 likes in 24 hours. A day later, the council backed down, leading to a celebration at the statue where people sang, We came, we saw, we conquered. Obviously, in a Scottish accent, that would be conquered. The petition, by the way, read, The cone on Wellington's head is an iconic part of Glasgow's heritage and means far more to the people of Glasgow and to visitors than Wellington himself ever has. Raising the statue will, in any case, only result in people injuring themselves and attempting to put the cone on anyway. Does anyone really think that a raised plinth will deter drunk Glaswegians? They had a point. And anyway, back in 2000, the then Lord Provost, Alex Mawson, said, The statue of Wellington has become famous for the cone on its head. The image typifies the unique mixture of culture and humour Glasgow has to offer. After all, the humour of the Glasgow people is the city's greatest selling point. Since then, the cone has changed to reflect circumstances. It was gold to celebrate the 2014 Commonwealth Games, held in Glasgow. Then a year later, a yes cone was added during the independence referendum. On the day Brexit became a thing in January 2020, a cone in the EU colours was seen atop a statue, while in March 2022, a cone in the colours of the Ukraine flag was in situ to protest the Russian invasion. As an aside, on my way to Czechia in September last year, I walked past it, and it was coneless. Just like the ravens at the Tower of London, was this a harbinger of chaos and societal collapse? I never found out why, but it was a couple of days after the death of Queen Elizabeth II, so I suspect other factors were at play. It's back now. And yes, there is CCTV in place to see who's doing it. But oddly, nothing's ever been done about that. So what have we learnt this week? Street art is as old as art itself and comes in many forms, from simple graffiti to huge council-approved art installations. Some of it is designed to promote the artist, some to promote a cause, and some to just simply be. There's no real limit to its scope, arguably not even the imagination, since many a council-approved artwork makes you go... Who thought of that? And sometimes the art is in the application and not the original concept. But let's end with a word from Sarah Irving. While many think street art is something of a crime and antisocial, I think it's the opposite. A social form of artwork inviting everyone to participate. There is no complicated descriptions that only an art graduate can decipher. You can discover the ones that catch your eye and bypass the ones that don't, and also open your mind to new possibilities and viewpoints. Take me to the streets and I will find some art. Well, that's all for this episode. Join me next time for another exploration beyond, beyond the bridge. What the episode will be on rather depends on how dedicated I am before my trip to Malta. I know what it should be on, but the episode you're listening to took far longer than normal to edit, so we'll see. Until then, look around every corner, as you never know what you'll find. Possibly a butt plug. And if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Beep.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.